0: I like that song a lot. I've been waiting for us to sing it here sometime. I'm glad Lindsay could sing it. I think her first time singing since she gave birth. Good to see. see she still has her voice after that experience. And uh, the truth of that song is profound. As we come here to open his word, we want the Lord to speak and uh, this kind of gets to what Craig was saying a little bit ago, that uh, it is the Word that speaks. It's, it is God's, through, through the Word, His Holy Spirit, that speaks to our hearts. So whatever blessing that we derive here this morning, true blessing, it'll be, it'll be God speaking to us. And that's what we want very much. So let me first of all say thank you for the opportunity to uh, catch my breath here in July. Um, we, have, we actually planned this last August, so it's been on the uh, calendar for almost a year now, uh, and I thought it was probably a good idea. I wish we would have come up with it like two months earlier, the whole July sabbatical, but we came up with it in August, so then it was like a whole other year I, to wait for that. Um, but it really is true. There is, there is a dimension to uh, preaching, teaching, pastoral ministry that, has been compared to uh, logging. And you know, a logger, nowadays they got the, cha- you know, the chainsaw, but in the old days they would be there and they'd be hacking away with the axe. And uh, periodically, the logger has to sit down, take some time, sharpen the blade. Because you can, you can keep cutting with a dull blade, but it is exhausting when you do. And preaching is similar to that. And so my saw, my, my saw blade could uh, use a little attention and I am going to be taking a little vacation in July. I am going to be, um, I got a stack of books that I want to read, some in prep for future messages in Corinthians, some I just want to read. Um, I'm hoping to meet with some pastors just to, for encouragement and fellowship. One thing, though, that I, am, uh, that I am doing, I'm actually announcing here today, this is the kickoff, the grand kickoff today of uh, a new venture for me. And uh, that is, I have now officially entered into the blogosphere. And I have a new blog that I want to encourage you to check out. Here it is. And uh, if you don't know what a blog is, a blog is like an online journal, essentially. And uh, on my blog, I am looking forward to communicating with the church about things that I don't have time to talk about in uh, the sermons, and you're like, well, you seem to take plenty of time doing that. No, there's lots more that I could say. And so on the blog, there will be uh, weekly updates of the, uh, the podcast, of the messages, and uh, our radio broadcast as well will be there. That's on our church website now, um, too. So that'll be going on there, uh, teaching videos from other pastors and teachers that I think would be helpful for us. I'll post those on there. Uh, it's got some fun things as well. For example, I have under Steve's faves, I have I have uh, local restaurant and menu selection recommendations. <laughs> After twelve years of living in Northwest Indiana as a single man, living off of carry out and and restaurants largely, I am uniquely qualified to make those recommendations, you might want to check that out. I have my favorite golf holes and a few other things. So anyway, the website is, uh, or the the address, URL address is stevedewitt.wordpress.com, but you can link to it through our church website as well. And I would just like to ask for you to bookmark that and to go to it regularly. I'm hoping in July to just kind of be writing, so uh, it'd be a way for you to kind of Sabbath with me. And I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a great little tool for us. All right, let's get into uh, let's get into our time in the word today. And as we have been working our way through 1 Corinthians, we've come now to chapter 7. And as you know, we've we've been talking about what Paul brings up and what Paul brings up is sex and marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage, how does all that work? It's been a very fun and challenging teaching section, and on the subject of marriage, the last time we were in 1 Corinthians, we saw that Paul is emphasizing the permanence of marriage by God's design. And in doing that, he is echoing what Jesus Christ himself taught on the subject of marriage uh, in Matthew 19 when he said that, uh, that, that marriage is a God thing. What God, what God has brought together, let not man separate, is what Jesus said. So, we've talked about the fact that that marriage, if you are married today, your spouse, your husband, your wife, they are in God's eyes, they are a treasure. Your marriage is a treasure. And in the day-to-day of doing marriage, it can seem like it's sort of, you know, just sort of familiarity breeds contempt. The Bible also says, and so very easily our estimation of the value and the worth of My marriage and my spouse over time can go down. And that's why we need to hear afresh God saying, listen, this marriage is a picture of me. It is valuable because it is picturing the Godhead and Christ's love for the church. And so Christians in a Christian marriage view that marriage the way that the Bible calls us to. See it as a treasure and a glory. And so permanence is the goal because God is always committed to himself within the Trinity and Jesus is always committed to the church. He loves the church, gave his life for it. Now, that said, in a fallen world, there are certain realities and complexities that the Bible also uh, affords. And we talked about the three situations where those marital vows and the obligation to fulfill those marital vows are or can be uh, eliminated. And so just to review those three things, again, the first one is pretty obvious, but just to say that death is the ending of obligation to fulfilling marital vows. And that spouse, the living spouse, is now free to uh, remarry if he or she would like. The second is adultery. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 19, and in the case of adultery, uh, option A is always the application of the gospel and forgiveness and reconciliation, and we are going to promote that, and we do that in those situations, those very heartbreaking situations that we deal with. However, the Bible does say that the victim spouse can, but doesn't have to, Divorce, and a biblical divorce allows for a biblical remarriage. The third is here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, in what is called the abandonment of an unbeliever. And let me just read that again, because maybe you weren't here, but just to reiterate what he's saying here. But if the unbelieving partner separates, so if you have a Christian married to a non Christian, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called us to peace. All right. So those are the three. And and I'm not going to spend time going over all that again. You can get the tape or listen to podcasts, whatever, about that. But here's the point. If those are the only three biblical occasions for the ending of a divorce, what should we take from that? That permanence in marriage is a big deal. How are we to view The challenges of marriage and when it gets tough and when it gets hard let me tell you when it does now what will become evident is whether you are in this marriage or viewing marriage from a me perspective or from a God perspective because when people are in it selfishly I am in it as long as my spouse is meeting my needs or as long as I feel like I am in love with you and when that's done Well, then the marriage is done. That is a me-centered approach to marriage. A God-centered approach to marriage where marriage is grounded in the character of God and is a reflection of the eternal enduring love of Jesus Christ for the church. When a Christian, and ideally two Christians, have this perspective on their marriage, now there is a reservoir. There There is a kind of strength of character and courage that allows a couple to work through the storms that inevitably come. And so life in a fallen world will reveal what kind of perspective we have on marriage. And that is why the church, and specifically our church, and the people, the marriages of our church had better get it now, maybe you're not in the storm right now, but you better get it now, what your marriage is really all about. It is not about you. You are living out a picture, a parable of what God is like, do it well, do it well. Now, last time, we did not answer all the questions, and I'm not going to answer all the questions today, but we left it where there was a lot of things hanging in the air. I've heard from uh, at least one person, maybe a few others, like, what about this, and what about that, and how about this? And So let me just try to uh, follow up then and answer a few of the questions that come uh, as a result of this, and I'm just going to kind of roll through these. Here's the first one. What if it was my sin? that caused the divorce in my life. What should I do? Do with that sin what we are called to do with all sin. Repent. Confess it to God. Claim, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess it to your spouse and others who were affected by it. And then... Uh, remain unmarried until reconciliation either happens with your ex-spouse or is no longer able to happen. Namely, he or she dies or remarries. And when that happens, then you are now no longer obligated to the vows of those marriage and you are free to remarry. Secondly, what should I do if I'm married to an unbeliever? What should I do if I'm married to an unbeliever? If you are a Christian and you were a Christian when you married this person, husband or wife, this also goes against God's will. What should you do about that? Do with it what we do with sin confess it to God as sin, ask for his forgiveness, and now because divorcing your unbelieving spouse would also be wrong, don't do that. You be the very best spouse that you can be and pray that God uses your witness in the home to touch him or her with the gospel. And we have seen that happen. It's a great thing when it does. Okay? Third question. And this is a thorny one. What about abuse? I got this question. What about abuse as it relates to a reason for uh, for divorce? And this is a very hard question and is a heartbreaking one. And I think what complicates it as well is that this word abuse uh, is abused itself, in my opinion. And as you, it's kind of fuzzy and people use it in some ways that I think are legitimate and in some ways that uh, probably are are not. Then, of course, you have other questions like uh, what kind are we talking about? The frequency, level of danger, are there children involved, and all the rest. So every situation is unique. But broadly speaking, what can we say about this? First of all, the Bible condemns all forms of abuse against one another. Condemns it flat out. You, you try to explain it, excuse it. You'll never get it from the Bible. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the closest neighbor that I have, or that you would have, would be your family, your husband, your wife, your children. That is categorically wrong, and God hates it. However, you can read through the Bible, and there is no place where the Bible talks about abuse in the context of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's just just not there. If you can find the verse, you let me know afterwards, but I don't think that you'll find it. So, because it doesn't do that, it kind of leaves us in this, uh, s- this uh, sort of state of animation. Is that the right word? Animation? State of suspended animation? I'm not even sure what that means, but it came to me. It came out of my mouth. I'm sorry. It leaves us in, a, in kind of a uh, tension. There's a better word. A tension ...with what to do, because clearly it is wrong, and yet the Bible doesn't give us any directives specifically on this subject. So, here's as best that I can do for you, and and it begins with the fact that this is a civil and a church issue. It is a civil issue. Romans 13 says that one reason that God has placed authorities over us is for our protection... And if there is abuse in the home and you're wondering what to do, I would say to you, call the authorities. They are there for your protection. And nobody should ever have to live that way, to live in a context where there is abuse. Nobody should. And they're there to help. Now, as far as the church goes, here is where the church and the Bible and, and and teaching, this is where it gets a little bit challenging. But I would say this that if you are, if it's a context like First Corinthians seven fifteen is talking about, where you have a Christian and a non Christian, and we will assume that it is the non Christian who is abusing the Christian. First Corinthians seven teaches us that if if two if a believer and unbeliever are married, that they and the, the unbeliever wants to stay, that they should stay married, right? If this, though, is going on in the home, I would say that in spite of his or her words, his actions are speaking louder. He is not wanting, or she, he is, we'll say he, he is not wanting to dwell with you as a husband. And so, if this is a pattern, then I would say that 1 Corinthians 7.15 would apply, even if he says, no, no, I want to stay with you. Well, you need to be a husband then, okay? I would also say that if it would be somebody who claims to be a Christian, who is causing this abuse in the home, it is hard for me to see how somebody could claim to be a Christian and have this habit in their life. Again, I'm sorry, I can't hear your words, your actions are speaking too loudly. And so I would also suggest that 1 Corinthians 7, 15 could also apply. And here's where I think the church is, has a role to play. Because your conscience is struggling with, what should I do? And am I free to leave this marriage? Let the church be a part of that. And godly pastors and leaders to listen and, and adjudicate what should take place there. And to help you work through that process. Again, they're very difficult. And every situation is unique. And they require wisdom. But you do not, listen, silent sufferer who might be here, you do not need to go through this alone. You don't. Let the civil authorities know. Let the church get involved. We're here to help you and to provide an umbrella of protection. Perhaps more to say on that, but that's as good as I'm going to do right now today. Okay, next question. Actually, let's do the next two. Okay? What if I unbiblically divorced in the past, and what if I unbiblically divorced in the past, and now have married someone else? And what do you do now? Okay, I've got this thing in my past, I realize now, maybe at the time you were not under biblical teaching, you weren't even worried about that, you weren't even thinking that way, but now you look back at that and you realize what I did was wrong, what should I do with it? The same thing that we do with all sin, confess it to God, repent of it, ask God to forgive you. If you have wronged somebody, ask them to forgive you as well. And then from that point on, be committed to fulfilling God's will in your life. Last question, what if I married someone whose first divorce was unbiblical? And this now is Matthew 19 where Jesus says that if somebody divorces unbiblically and then marries somebody else they now are making them an adulterer. What do I do if I've already made this marital vow and I'm in this context? Well, let me just say this. Again, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. This is the grace of God. It is not, we don't presume on his grace, but we also need to rest in his grace and so confess it to God and then be the very best Christian spouse that you can be. And pray that your spouse would repent of his first divorce, his or her first divorce, and determined to fulfill God's will in his or her life from that point on. All right. Now, if you look at this list, let's all look at this list together a moment. That's like complicated, isn't it? Don't you look at that and you think, why is it so convoluted? Can I let you know? Can I tell you why it is so convoluted? Here's why. Because sin complicates life. Whenever we step away from God's blueprint, things just start crashing and it is hard, very hard, to put them back together. And we need to acknowledge that if you have a family member or you yourself or a friend who's ever gone through a marriage and a divorce, then you know that this is a devastating experience and there's just there's collateral damage all over the place. However, this is the gospel. That God has come to redeem us from the sins, the failures of our past. And so, at the same time that the church needs to hold high God's standard for marriage, we also need to come in, in the pain of that, and to say, there is a God who loves you. And there is a God who desires to make you whole again. To reconcile with you. And maybe even reconcile horizontally with Others. I was uh, recently, last day or so, eating a hamburger in one of the local establishments that I have recommended on my blog. <laughs> and I was, I just got there, got the menu, knew what I wanted, and my, my waitress came up and uh, took my order. Well, then she came back and she said, where are you a pastor at? And I said, at Bethel Church she's like, oh, I've had a lot of people uh, uh, want me to come there or something. And I go, oh, well, you should. She goes, oh. She went on to tell me that, what did she say? She says, listen, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell. She said, I don't, that doesn't bother me so much, but I'm concerned for my children. They need to know God. And so I've been thinking about going to church. And she went on to just talk about, she said, I am so angry. And she was just just so painfully angry. And it's one of those moments where you're like, uh, what do I say? And so I said to her this. I said, listen, at the, at the bottom line, at the end of all of this, God loves you. God loves you. And he came to redeem and restore what is broken. And he loves you. And I want you to know that. And he can redeem your life. And she goes, what time are your services? <laughs> so pretty cool. Yeah, that's uh, that is the gospel, though. I mean, we you know we come to church and you know here we are. We sing the songs. Everything's very nice, but really the reality of it is that we're all living life and we all have these sorrows and this anguish and what do we need to know in the midst of it? We need to know that there is a God who loves us and cares for us. Now, that said, a few other pastoral exhortations that I want to give right now because I don't know when I'll be on the subject of marriage again. If this is the pain that can come when marriage crashes and if permanence in marriage is what God has called us to, what should we take away from that? First of all, let me say this. To those of you that are single, I want you to look at this list and to think about people that you know who have gone through the pains of marital breakup, and I want you to realize how important it is the kind of person that you, if you do, that you choose to marry. What really matters in the spouse that you are going to consider. I would say to you, these are the things that matter. Is he or she a godly Christian committed to God's design in marriage? Because if they're not committed to that design, then they're not committed to permanence, and they're not committed to reflecting the glory of God in your marriage, and that's going to be a big problem. Are they vow keepers? Because you know, at the core of Your marriage is the fact that you have promised. And if you marry somebody who is not a vow keeper, that's going to be a problem. How do they resolve conflict? Because you're going to have it. You're going to annoy each other every day. So, how important is it to marry somebody who is quick to forgive and slow to anger and knows how to biblically resolve conflict? Very important. So, here's what I'm saying. There. Listen, there are so many more important things than how she looks or whether he is a stud or not, all right? Much more important things. Ladies, listen to me. Better to marry the pencil-necked geek who loves God. And in saying that, I have no one in particular in mind. Better to marry the pencil-necked, geeky, Christian guy who loves the Lord than the muscle-head, suave, debonair, whatever guy, who doesn't. Men, better to marry a God-loving, Christ-worshipping, average-looking woman than the goddess who doesn't. Because... The better the Christian, the better the spouse. And the better the spouse, the better the marriage. And the better the marriage, the better the blessings that God intended marriage to bring. Including the ones that we talked about at the beginning of this chapter. It all comes together. And so I would just appeal to our young people and to the singles who are here, if you are ever thinking about getting married, to begin to think now about the kind of person who with you can have a marriage that reflects the character of God. And if you are right now dating, considering marrying somebody who doesn't fit that criteria, you don't even have to pray about it, dump him. In fact, I give you permission right now to get up. We have ushers at the door with cell phones. Take care of it and then come in and enjoy the rest of the sermon. All right? Someday you will thank me for that. And then look for a good geeky guy here in the room. Okay, now married couples, the implications are profound for you as well. If the more Christ-like that your spouse is, the better spouse he or she is, and the better marriage that you will have, what does that say about the kinds of things that you need to be trying to promote in your spouse? And what does that say about the kinds of things that your marriage should be revolving around and the kinds of things that you're spending your time doing and the way that you are cultivating that marriage. If it is the godliness of your spouse and his or her commitment to reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ in the way that they relate to you, an imperfect person, then do all that you can to promote spiritual growth in their life and pray that God would do that in their life and pray that God would mature them spiritually and give attention to the things that do that. And I would say that if you do that, it will enrich your marriage. And who doesn't want to have an enriched marriage? I think everybody does. All right, so... Those are my final uh, little follow-up to last week's message. That was basically the introduction. (laughs) So let's move on. And what we're going to do now in the text is we are going to tackle verses 17 through 24. And you're going, oh, there's no way. No, I can do it. Okay, I can do it yet. Verses 17 through 24. Let me introduce it this way by asking you a question. If I asked you... What is one thing that needs to change? What is one thing? What is the thing that needs to change in your life? What might you say that it is? Now think about that as I read our passage here. And uh, I'm just going to read it right straight through. Okay? In fact, why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? Can we do that? Here we go. Only... Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. May God add the blessing. To the reading of his word, thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, right now, you're sitting down going, I have no idea what he's going to do with this passage. And in a way, it is a struggle because it would seem to be a real digression from what he has been talking about with marriage and singleness and all the rest. So, what is going on here? Remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to these Corinthian Christians at this church, and there had come to the church a prevailing philosophy that said that to be really spiritual, you had to be sexless and single, okay? That's what you needed to do. So the result of that was that the married people were sitting there going, well, why did I marry you? If if I'm going to please God and I've got to be single, then I think I, I sort of wish that I was single and the single people in the church are struggling we know from the previous passage with the normal passions and desires of sexuality and so they're thinking that they might want to get married but they're worried that maybe god wouldn't like that and so but in their hearts they want to be married so the married people want to be single the single people want to be married and paul then goes on to describe four other groups he talks about the jews and the gentiles in verse 18 the slaves and the free men, in verses 21 and 22. So let's just talk about them a second. And uh, this is just what the text says, that the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, now coming to understand that salvation is by faith and is not the works of the law, are viewing their circumcision and sort of wishing that they hadn't uh, had that done. And the Gentile Christians reading through the Old Testament and seeing how this is talked about so much, are in their heart thinking, well, maybe to be pleasing to God, I need to do this, are sort of wishing that they had had it done. So the Jews wish they were circumcisionally Gentiles. The Gentiles wish that they were circumcisionally Jews. The married people wish that they were single. The single people wish that they were married. The slaves, he says here, you want to talk about people in hard circumstance, it would have been slaves. The slaves here now are naturally desiring to be free and are wondering if they can be good Christians as slaves. And so what Paul is doing here is he is trying to counteract a common Christian misunderstanding about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be spiritual in God's eyes. And here it is. Many, many Christians think... That what God primarily wants to do is to change the circumstances of my life. When we think about change, we think, okay, God, I want you or I think that you should change. And you fill in the blank there. I asked you at the beginning, fill in that blank. I would bet 95% of the things that we came to our mind had something to do with an outward circumstance of our life. God, I wish that you would change my spouse. I wish that you would change my job situation. I wish that you would change uh, my, my children in some way. I wish that you would change a relationship in my life. I wish that you would change my health situation. I wish that you would change my financial situation. And on and on, these are the things probably that came to our mind as we thought about what needs to change in our life. And this is the way that we oftentimes approach it. Think of our prayers. Listen to our prayers. Our prayers so often are about these outward things in our life. And in our hearts, we think that this is primarily what God is wanting to do. And to this, Paul wants to just scream and say, stop this, people. We are are not getting the point. What God primarily wants to do is not to change my circumstances, but to change me in my circumstances. Let me say it again. What God is primarily wanting to do is not to change my circumstances, but to change me in my circumstances. And so Paul repeats this for emphasis. And that's how Paul screams, by the way, in the Bible, is he repeats because it's, these, you know, it's not like these new cards that they have where you open it up and there's a song or they talk to you or something like that. Wouldn't that be great, though? You open it up and there's the Apostle Paul and you can hear his inflection and you can know what he's really passionate about. He can't do that. They didn't have those back then. So uh, he has to repeat himself. And when he repeats himself, that means this is really an important thing to him. And so he repeats this point in verses 17, 20, and 23. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition... In which he was called. Verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And then, verse 17, which I think is the key one let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. Now, that verse is the key. And I would suggest today that for many of us who struggle with discontentment about something in my life, here is a good word for us today. Notice what it says: Let each lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. So what he is saying here is that behind behind the circumstance of my life, whether that be my marriage, my educational background, my uh, health my um, my My job, my house, or whatever it is, behind this life circumstance, there is a sovereign God who has assigned my station of life to me and has providentially put me there and so the Christian then, looking at this through the lens of the Bible, looks at looks at their life biblically and says... This is not just chance. This is not just some random thing that has happened in my life. There is a God who is behind it. So that perhaps it was a mistake that I made in the past. It was a dumb decision. It was a whatever. But behind that, God is sovereignly working. So that today, I can say to you, your life is the life that at this point the Lord has assigned to you. Whether you like it or not. There is a sovereign God behind everything. And he does want to change. God is all about change. Christianity is all about change, but it is not changing our circumstances. God has much more glorious goals for us. What does God want to change? What is in the big picture? What does he want to change? And if you've been coming to Bethel Church for very long, I would hope that you would be sort of like keying in on this point because we talk about it so much. What is God's goal in my life? He is not trying to make me healthy. He is not trying to make me wealthy. He is maybe trying to make me wise. But the big goal is that he is conforming us to the image of his son. Romans 8 says it. Let me read it to you. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Son, God is working in your life, Christian, to conform you, not outwardly, okay? Not outwardly, not circumstantially, but inwardly. On the level of the of the heart and the mind and the soul, the spirit, where my, my real personhood is, where my priorities are and where my passions are and where the, the goals and the directions and the motivations of my life are, that's where God is in there. And he's shaping and he's forming and he is making us into the likeness, in terms of our attitudes and actions, of Jesus Christ. And the clearer that we understand that, the more readily we accept circumstances outwardly that we deem bad. Why? Because God is in it. He is using it to do something inside of me that he wants to do. He wants to make me like his son, who he loves. And as a Christian, so do we. So this is good news for us. Oh, he's making us into the image of the person that I love the most. My hero, Jesus Christ. Good. Now, I'm talking really fast. I don't know why. Maybe Jesus did. (laughs) I don't know. But uh, do you get what I'm saying? This makes a big difference. Big difference. We want God to change our circumstances. God wants to change our pride. He wants to transform our selfishness. He wants to remove our hypocrisy. He wants to... uh, to work on our priorities. He wants to shape our passions. He wants to change us inside, inwardly, in a way that comes out. It's the inside out. That is Christianity. Now, that said, God does sometimes desire to change our circumstances and he sovereignly can do that, right? And we're, you know, when he does that, this is, you know, we're okay, God, you're working in my life. That's a wonderful thing. But some of us, I think, only view God working in our life when he's working to change our circumstances. So that I go through a trial and I realize I've got pride in some way and I, it shapes me. And we think, okay, it shapes me. But then all of a sudden, God works in some way and he sells my car or changes my job and we're like, God is at work in my life. Listen, he is at work in your life always. Inwardly. Which is the real, this is the value, this is the soul, this is what matters. He wants our heart. Remember, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's God's goal. He wants to get us there inside. All right. Now, in light of that, I would like to just uh, spend a little time in application. Since this is the truth, that God is not primarily wanting to change our circumstances, but is wanting to change us in our circumstances, what does that mean? Okay? What does that mean? I think that this means a change... In the way that we view some things in our life. I just want to walk through these. I got three. Number one. Changes the way that we view ourselves. Changes the way we view ourselves. In the world that we live, most people view themselves in terms of outward circumstances. Like, how do I look? Where do I live? How much money do I have? What kind of car do I drive? Um... What kind of educational background do I have? What ethnicity am I? What is my social status? What kind of props do I have that go along with social status? How much money do I have? The things that money can buy. And on and on it goes so that the the normal person views themselves completely, they define themselves completely in terms of the outward. Would you agree with that? Am I on pretty good ground there? Are you living in the world that I'm living in? I think so. Most of you are. So, I think that that is, uh, that that is true. This is what defines people. Now, I'd like you to think about this week that we've had. It has been quite a week in the news. Three very significant cultural icons died. First one, and I want you to think about how they were defined. Number one. Probably the biggest news was Michael Jackson dying this week. Great entertainer. Lots of baggage with that, but unbelievably talented. Okay? Number two, Farrah Fawcett. How was she defined? What was she all about? Sex symbol. Sex symbol. Number three, Ed Thomas. Now, some of you are going, now, who is Ed Thomas? Well, if you're watching the news, especially... Sports Center, then you heard about Ed Thomas. Ed Thomas is a football coach in the state of Iowa, my home state. And we know about Ed Thomas. I've been, for example, I've been to the High V Iowa State High School Hall of Fame in Des Moines, which is it sounds hokey, but it really is a very nice, very, very nice Hall of Fame. And I went there to see my statue, which I they haven't quite got it done yet. But as I was walking around, <laughs> as I was walking around, they have this huge display about this guy because he coaches the Parkersburg High School football team. And Parkersburg is not far from where I grew up, just actually really sort of down the road. It's a wide spot in the road. There's like a couple hundred students in the whole school. And yet, in spite of that, Ed Thomas, four current NFL football players a few of them like you know all pro kind of thing how many high school football coaches can can say that and especially from Parkersburg Iowa so he was very noteworthy in in that way here's the thing about Ed Thomas and my family I have family connections to to him what they're saying about Ed Thomas is that you know oftentimes when somebody passes away they they talk about him and maybe they sort of, you know, talk about him in glowing terms. The thing about Ed Thomas is that they're saying is everything you hear about him is true. It's true. Okay? Christian man, elder in his church, famous coach. Okay? Now, I want you to think about what we're talking about here in terms of how our world defines greatness and defines people. What really, what really matters? And to this Christianity says something to everyone, irrespective of social status, irrespective of how beautiful you are, irrespective of how talented you are. It doesn't matter if I was in India talking to the untouchable caste, I would say the same thing to them that I would say to the Wall Street traders. What does it say? That Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners. And that now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I no longer define myself by the social status things, or by my, by my my education, or by how I look, or any of the other things. I am who I am in Christ. He is the one that defines me so that now I am a Christian Wall Street trader, and now I am a Christian football coach, and now I am a Christian husband or a Christian wife. Christ transforms and touches the outward but it begins on the inward and the definitions don't matter he transcends those galatians 3 there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in christ the old definitions don't apply anymore i am who i am in christ and i must see myself that way And what an encouragement that is to somebody here who sees disease in their body or sees outwardly not what they want or sees a job situation that is painful. And especially as a man wondering, you know, if you're out of work right now, and so often men in particular, you know, first question is, where do you live? What do you do? And if you don't have an answer to that, you sort of feel like, I don't know right now. And yet as a Christian to say, I am who I am in Christ transcends that and to see ourselves that way i think that would be very helpful for us changes the way i look at myself secondly the gospel transforms the way i look at my past you know the corinthians you have you have the married people and they're like going oh why did i marry and you have the single people going I should have married. And you have the gentile people going I should have been circumcised. And the Jews saying I wish I hadn't been circumcised. And the slaves going I wish I wasn't a I wish that I wasn't a slave. And and there are people that are this way it might be you today. Constantly second guessing and wondering about some decision that you made in the past, wondering if you made the right decision, wondering all these things. Like there you are, you're wondering if only I had gone to college. If only I had married Joey from high school. If only I had not married Joey from high school. If only I had made some different decision and your life is racked with this. If only, if only, if only. Listen to what the Bible is saying to you today. You are where you are because the Lord has assigned you to that place. He has called you to this. And the calling now is not to just live in the past, and oh, if only, but to say, here is where I am, I'm in where God has assigned me, and I am going to live for the glory of God here. Whether slave or free, male or female, married or single, it doesn't matter. One commentator, Paul, is telling the Christians that the key to making their present situation count is to let God change them daily, right where he has placed them. So, Quit second-guessing the past and leave here today and say, you know what? I am here. By God's decree, I'm going to live for his glory. Out with the if only thing. All right. Here's the last one. And, boys, this could be so helpful. I pray that God blesses this point right here. What we're talking about in the gospel and Christianity changes how I find contentment. How I find contentment. You know, the world that we live in thinks that if only these things outside of me would change, then I will have peace in my heart. And so what do they do? They're constantly trying to change everything. I got to get a different house. I got to get a bigger house. I got to get a different car. I got to get a better car. I need to have a different spouse. I need to have, I need to live somewhere else. I need to get an educational thing. And and all these things are not, other than the one, are not inherently wrong, (laughs) but... And, and there's even a part in this that promotes a sense of, 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 of moving forward. The slave, if you can get your freedom, you know, get it. There's nothing wrong with advancing in life and all the rest. But I cannot think that these are the things that are going to provide peace and contentment in my heart. They can't. And the reason that they can't is that we were never made to find contentment in these things. We were made for God. We were made for God. And Christian, you have him in Jesus Christ. You have what your soul longs for. Even if we don't realize it, none of us do how, how, totally. But we have him. And so this changes where I go and where, where I find my definition, where I find my significance, and where I think I'm going to find contentment. We think we find it or we find it in the Lord. As Augustine said, I love the quote, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. So that the single now sees their singleness as a part of God's plan for their life and doesn't sit there going, if only I was married, then I would be happy. And the married person now, good marriage or bad, sees that as a context that God has called him or her to live out the gospel and doesn't think if only I wasn't in this marriage or if I was only married to somebody else. No, God has called you to this marriage. Make it work for the glory of God and the person who has the health issue doesn't just pine away all the time thinking if only I didn't have the health issue but sees now this disease as an opportunity to glorify God and all the things in our life all these outward categories they don't define they don't and we don't go there we don't I don't think that that's gonna bring peace I got what brings peace and I want God to promote that in my heart I've got the Lord I've got the Lord and he is working that change within me and this is what I want the most I don't think I explained that very well, but if you get what I'm saying, it really is a countercultural, radical truth that for the Christian is wonderful, truly. Now, how does this happen? God does it. He is sanctifying us. He is doing his work. We cannot do it on our own. The world tries to do it on their own, and they run after all these things, but they never can find what they're looking for. And I just want to conclude with a great illustration of this. I graduated from high school in 1986. And I'm, this week, unlike some probably here, but I've been, I have been reflective about the whole Michael Jackson thing. Okay, some people are, some people aren't. Young people are like, I don't get it. But I was in high school when he was like, that was his, that was the pinnacle of his Career and I remember me and my friends. You know, we were normal high school guys, and we sort of thought he was cool. Okay, and so he, you know, we. I learned to moonwalk because I thought it was cool. <laughs> and I can still do it at the bowling alley with the slippery wood. <laughs> and so because of that, now, what happened this week with his death? I just have been like thinking about. It's I don't know. It's just it's been something in my. In my mind. And I got thinking about what we're talking about today, and I thought about one of his uh, most popular songs, uh, Man in the Mirror. And I want you to listen to Michael Jackson, through his own lyric, describe where change comes from. And then I want to compare that to another lyric, which is the last stanza of the song In Christ Alone. Okay? So listen to now two utterly different approaches to life. Michael Jackson. I'm going to make a change. For once in my life, it's going to feel real good. Going to make a difference. Going to make it right. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Nah, 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 nah. Okay? Self-generated, self-help, way of the world. Contrast that now with a whole another approach. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. You get it? Let's stand.